Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. I'm wondering, uh, how many of you grew up with Aesop's Fables? Anybody here, Aesop's Fables? Okay, there's a bunch of us. We have a little more gray hair than some of us. Yeah, so I had a book of Aesop's Fables. The most famous one is the story of the tortoise and the hare, right? The race between the turtle and the rabbit, the tortoise and the hare. Anybody remember what the famous line of the story of the tortoise and the hare is? Anybody? I don't know why I remember this. Slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, you know it, right? A fable is a story designed to teach a moral truth. Fables are a form of positive moralism. They make moral choices look good and they make immoral choices look bad in order to persuade you to make better moral choices, right? And this is the way you should live your life. If you are like this, you will be a better person and you will have a better life. That's what fables are designed to do. Now, very often, this is a way that people read the Bible and teach the Bible. The Bible is a book of moral stories. God wants you to be good. Good people do this. Bad people do that. So be a good person because God wants you to be good. And this is a really common approach to using the Bible, and you may have seen it modeled in preaching or teaching or Sunday school or youth group. Do this, don't do this, be good, don't be bad. God wants you to be good little boys and girls. Be like Peter, be like Jesus, be like Paul, be like Joseph. You recognize moralistic teaching when the point of the story is to be like a particular person or character. Here's the weakness of using the Bible that way. While the Bible does have many characters that lend themselves to that way of being used because there are some good moral examples, it is actually not the primary way the Bible should be used. The Bible is first and foremost the record of God as he is working redemption in the world. And God is always the primary character of the Bible, and what he is doing in the world is the primary action in the Bible. The Bible is, by definition, the history of redemption. It's not just a book of fables about people that are good moral examples. The second drawback with the moralistic approach to the Bible is this. All of the characters, with the exception of God and with the exception of Jesus God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the characters in the Bible have flaws. Sometimes glaring flaws in their moral character. 
And there is not a single Bible character, especially those whose character is well-developed in the story of the Bible, who is a shining, perfect example of morality and righteousness. And there's a reason for that. The Bible is about how God is redeeming people. People who are deeply flawed, who are broken, who are twisted, who are sinful, and who are sick. And the whole point of the Bible and the characters in the Bible is that we need to have God come into our lives so that we can be redeemed. Or else we will perish. We will perish at the hand of our own devices, at the devices of those in the world around us, or at the devices of the evil one himself. Our own sinful nature, the collective force of the sinful nature of all people in the world, and Satan and his demons will inevitably destroy every single person unless God redeems. There are no perfect moral examples outside of Jesus, our Redeemer. So, as we continue through our series, When God Seems Invisible, through the book of Esther, we have a bit of a problem because it never mentions the name of God or, or, or directly speaks about God. Here we meet Esther and her adoptive father, Mordecai, who are the human agents which God uses to bring redemption to his people. And what we see is that they are clearly less than ideal people. Though God will use them to do something really important, it's not their shining moral character that makes them so useful to him. Let's think about where God had them. We see this in verses 1 through 9 of our passage together. Last week, we saw how the king of Persia and his counselors had banished Queen Vashti because she refused to make a command appearance before the king and all of his officers after they had been feasting and drinking for seven days. And she said, no, I won't come. And so they deposed her from being queen. And we meet the king, King Ahasuerus. Yeah, that's a hard name to say, right? He's also known as King Xerxes. Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same person if you're comparing history in Persia. And you can go back and you can listen to our podcast or our YouTube and review what we learned about what God was doing in the world when it seems uncontrollably wicked. And as the story progresses today, it gets worse. Chapter 2 takes place seven years after Vashti was banished. There's still no new queen. In the meantime, Xerxes suffered another humiliating military loss to the Greeks. Now he's back in Persia in the city of Susa, licking his wounds. 
And there's a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus who wrote quite a bit about Persia at this time, and he notes in the history of Persia that Xerxes became known to become increasingly sensual and out of control during this time of his reign. Our story tells us that the young counselors around King Xerxes proposed that all of the beautiful young virgins of the kingdom should be gathered into the king's harem. And they should receive extensive beauty treatments for one full year. And then one by one, the young women should be led to the bedroom of King Ahasuerus. And the one that pleases him the most, he should choose as queen. And all of these young virgins would be kept in the king's harem under his eunuchs, most likely castrated male servants. And they would be taken from their families and beautified for their one night with the king. And after their one night with the king, they would no longer be virgins, and they would become concubines, which is a polite word for royal sex slaves. They would be kept in a different part of the harem now, after they were used by the king. They would only ever come out of the harem again for the rest of their lives if the king summoned them. Otherwise, they would remain there. We're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin whose family had been deported under the Babylonians. Mordecai lives in the city of Susa. Verse 21 tells us that he says, it says that he was at the king's gate, which is actually a reference to a huge government building in the city that was positioned at one of the gates to the king's palace. And most likely, Mordecai had some kind of government job. And he adopted the daughter of his uncle, who was an orphan. Her Jewish name is Hadassah, but she's called Esther in the rest of the story. It's interesting. Mordecai sounds like a Babylonian name, Marduka, which is a common Babylonian name after the god Marduk. There is an official in the annals of King Xerxes who was called Marduka. We have it in other non-biblical literature. Is it Mordecai? Maybe. Esther sounds like the name Ishtar, which is the Babylonian goddess of love and war. Perhaps they had been renamed from their Jewish names by the Babylonians. We see this happened in the book of Daniel. Esther is taken from Mordecai to be in the harem of the king of Persia because she is a beautiful young virgin. And so she becomes part of Ahasuerus' harem. Well, how did they respond when this happened? Our story in verses 10 through 18 goes on to tell us that Esther became very, very popular and was highly regarded in the harem of the king. And Mordecai goes to the gate of the harem. He's not allowed in there. And regularly, he's trying to find out how Esther is doing. And he instructs her to not tell anyone that she is Jewish. And it would seem apparent that Mordecai lived that way as well. He did not publicize his heritage. And as the day approaches for Esther's turn to go into the king... 
She is highly favored by her attendants and is carefully advised about what that meeting is going to be like. And as a result of their evening together, King Xerxes is smitten with Esther and makes her his queen. And there's this huge celebration of her ascendancy as the queen of Persia. Now, if this story feels discreetly sensual, that's deliberate. There is a lot of innuendo here. Basically, the king of Persia is scooping up all of the virgin young women in the kingdom and consuming them one night at a time. He's seeking the most beautiful and pleasing bride. And Esther wins the competition and becomes his queen. But this is not to say that Ahasuerus even put all those other women aside. He can still have them if he pleases, even though Esther is the queen and wears the crown. It's a dark scene of sexual abuse at the hands of power. And two of God's children are swept up in the wave of darkness that hangs over the empire and over the world. And they have to serve a king who views the young women of his empire as objects for his own personal delight, not as people who are made in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect. Their beauty is something for the king to consume. And even the people of faith cower in obedience to him. Where is God in all this? Now we have in the Hebrew Bible a couple other examples of what it means to be an observant Jewish believer in a foreign land. Daniel and his three friends chose to reject ceremonially unclean food that was offered to them while they were being groomed to work for the king of Babylon. Daniel's three friends refused to bow down and worship a statue of the king, and they were rescued by the God of Israel when they were punished by being thrown into a fiery furnace. They survived. Daniel did not stop ceasing to pray three times a day in his window towards Jerusalem, even though the king of Babylon had issued a decree that you are not to pray to anybody other than him. And when he was found out to be praying, he was thrown into a lion's den, and the God of Israel rescued him out of the lion's den. Also, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, contemporary with this time, Israel's leaders fought fervently to prevent the people of Israel from marrying non-believers and the God of Israel from foreign nations. And the teller of the story of Esther and Mordecai does not mention, just doesn't say whether or not either of them had scruples or objections about their situations in which they were in. Neither of them is known for their faith. And it's pretty hard to be an observant follower of the Jewish faith and go unnoticed in a foreign culture. And it would seem that they were in some kind of compliant, compromise and compliance, although be it at the fourth point of a sword, 
And the final blow is when Esther becomes the wife of a pagan king, a problem that the people of Israel were struggling to prevent back in their homeland. It's a twisted story, isn't it? When I left the ministry year 2000, I took a job in the sales department of a local car dealership in my town where I grew up. I liked cars, I liked people, so I hoped this would be a decent place for me to work. I'd never worked in a car dealership before. I'd been with my mom when she bought a car one time and that was pretty awful. And I didn't know what I was getting into. And I wish I could tell you that I was this bold, bright, shining light of goodness there. But truth be told, it was really confusing. There was an immense amount of pressure to conform, and I needed this job. And there were sales practices that were very unethical, and I struggled, and I sometimes conformed. And I did things there of which I am not proud. And I worked for, had to work for that store for eight years. And it took me a while and some anguish to try to figure out a way to be different. And I wouldn't point to myself as a shining example during this point in my life. If you are a person of faith, as I was in the situation where you find yourself in compromise and acting inconsistently with your values as a Christian like I was, you will probably find that your conscience, you're struggling with your conscience, and you eventually will come to a point in which you have to decide whether you're going to resist compromise and stand for what you believe in, or give up your faith. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, the night before Jesus was crucified, and tried, Jesus prayed for his disciples out loud, and his disciples heard his prayer. And I'd like you to listen carefully if, as I read portions of the prayer of Jesus for his disciples, and listen particularly for two words, uh, two phrases, in the world and of the world, in the world and of the world. Listen as I read. Jesus is praying and he says, And I am no longer in the world, but they, his disciples, are in the world. And I, Jesus prays, am coming to you, to his Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, if you listen carefully, Jesus sends his followers into the world, but he does not want them to be of the world. And here's what I think he means by that. The world, as we know, can be an evil place, just like the world in the days of Esther and Mordecai. And unlike Jewish people, we do not have ritual clothing that we have to wear in order to identify ourselves as Christians. We don't have ritual foods that we have to eat that only things are clean and unclean for us. We don't have a ritual calendar like the Jews did. We do gather for worship and for fellowship with one another. But we love Jesus, our Redeemer, and we want to be and do everything that he wants us to do. He wants us to love our neighbor as we have been loved and be bright spiritual lights for God's glory. He prays that we would be sanctified or that we would be holy or that we would be set apart, that we would be special. This means that when the world tries to squeeze us into its ungodly, unholy mold, we cling tightly to our faith, we hold on to what we believe is true, and we do what we understand to be good and right and honorable. And may I say to you that it is no easier today than in any other day in the history of the world. We must cling to Jesus and seek to honor his name. And sometimes that's going to have consequences for us as God's children in a hostile world. And the Bible is full of warnings about what happens when we are squeezed by life into, the wor into this world to compromise our faith and disobey our Savior. And I have felt this pressure to conform. And I'm sure that many of you have too. I remember <laughs> the same boss at that job. I, I had, there was a course in ethics and, and dealer finance that I wanted to take. And I said, I would like to take this course. And he says, I'll pay for you to take that course, but your numbers better not go down. And if you haven't felt that pressure yet, may I say to you, you will. You will. Jesus prays that while we are in the world, we will not be of the world. He gives us his word so that we may understand what is true. He gives us his Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and our minds. And as an internal guide of our consciences, he gives us the family of faith so that we can share with one another when we are struggling and encourage one another and support one another when we wrestle with these challenges that we face. That's what Jesus prayed for us. I want you to think thirdly in this passage about what God is doing. What is God doing? We see this in verses 19 through 23. 
As the end of chapter 2 is almost coming, we find Mordecai regularly seeking to stay connected to his adoptive daughter, Esther. He has no control over her well-being, but he continues to be, do his best to be in her life. And while Mordecai is working in the king's gate, he overhears about an assassination plot to kill King Xerxes. And he reports the plot to Esther, who reports the plot to the king. And the king is rescued by Mordecai, and his name is most likely entered into the annals or the records of the kings of Persia. But actually, after that right here, little seems to come of the matter. A person who has been of special assistance to the king would usually be called a benefactor, and his name was no doubt written down. But Mordecai doesn't receive much notice for his good deed. But of course, if you've read ahead into the rest of the story, you know that this little event becomes pivotal in the whole rest of the story. It's going to result in Esther and Mordecai being exposed as Jewish people and in the final vindication of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. But that's for later. We cannot look at the lives of Esther and Mordecai here as people of faith and say that they are exemplary, can we? They don't appear to be good examples. And as Christians... The ends never, ever justifies the means. Never. We are called to be true to our God and we're called to be true to our consciences that he gives us. But we also have to come to grips with this truth. None of us. None of us. None of us is a perfect example for anyone to follow. There isn't a Christian in the world, including the apostles of Jesus, who can say, I have arrived, follow me. Christianity is a faith that recognizes that we all fall short, each and every one of us. None of us measures up to the ethical call to holiness and purity that God calls us to. Each of us has to be able to say, this is where I have fallen short, and name it. This is the grace that God had on me because I needed it. We are all made of the same sinful stuff. We all need a Redeemer a Savior who died for us so that we might be forgiven. In addition, Jesus rose from the dead so that to give us a new life, and he gives us a brand new beginning. And no matter what we have done in our past, and no matter what has been done to us in our past, I don't know about you, but sometimes my failures haunt me. The memories come back and we think to ourselves, you call yourself a Christian and you did that. The word for that feeling when you hear those words is shame. Even though we are forgiven and our sins are under the cleansing blood of Jesus, 
We remember our wrongs, we remember the wrongs done to us, and we feel soiled and dirty and unclean and rejected. But this cannot be the truth. Jesus died and rose for my sin. Shame is not the end of my story. Yes, God, I've done plenty of things of which I am ashamed. There are things that have been done to me that I would rather never speak of ever again in the light of day. And these things can assail our souls again and again and again, failure after failure after failure. And, and, and we have to say, I have to say, yes, God, it's true. I did that. That's what was done to me. I'm still struggling with this. But no, no, it is not the end of the story because you died for my sin. You rose to give me a new life. And I'm not going to believe that I am unclean or irredeemable because I believe your cross and your spirit are able to cover my sin and my shame. We surrender our sin, and our shame to him again and again and again, every single time it comes at us. And we believe the good news that we have a Redeemer that is capable of saving us all the way through to the end, one shaky day at a time. When we meet Esther and Mordecai, we meet some weak examples of what it means to be a godly person of faith who are swept up in the dark evil that is quite overwhelming. But God isn't finished with them yet. By his grace, under his divine wisdom, and through his supernatural kingship, he's going to work through those very imperfect people. He's going to challenge and raise their level of dedication to him. And he's going to help them distinguish themselves from the world around them. And he's going to rescue the people of, e of Israel by using these sadly imperfect people. And may I say to you, my West Church faith family, the world in which we live is not always a safe place for our faith. Sometimes we struggle with sin, compromise, and shame. And it's going to be part of our journey. It's going to be. But God isn't done with you yet. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is to every generation. If Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you a new life, just return to him humbly. Confess where you've fallen short. Believe that you are his divine child by faith and by faith alone. Clear away the wreckage of your past. It's there. No sense in hiding it. Allow his spirit and his grace to wash over you when the shame assails. Trust in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Follow Jesus. You will not be disappointed. Let's pray.
God, we sang together, Oh God, my God, I need you. Oh God, my God, I need you now. How I need you now. You heard your children then, you hear your children now. You are a healer then, you are a healer now. You are a savior then, you are a savior now. Help us, Lord, not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good through the grace of the risen Jesus. This we ask in his mighty name. Amen.